secret agent man secret agent man they've given you a number and taken away your name welcome back to the global inquirer my name is emmy lockwood and i'm the editor-in-chief the global inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to examine how global trends impact real lives. So on today's episode, I interviewed John Seifer, an ex-CIA clandestine service officer. And all around, he's a pretty cool person to talk to. I spoke with him on March 1st after a busy week in the news cycle. Heightened tensions between India and Pakistan, the Michael Cohen hearing for the House Oversight Committee, and the U.S.-North Korea summit. By the time you hear this, some things may have changed from what I talked about with John, but the interview should give you a good framework to understand some key foreign and domestic politics. Let's get right in. My name is John Seifer. I spent almost 30 years in Central Intelligence Agency in the clandestine service, so that's the part of the agency um, who works overseas. Essentially, it's the espionage arm of the, of the CIA, of the U.S. government, whose job is to collect intelligence on behalf of the U.S. government. And I worked in South Asia, Russia, Europe, um, and, and, and Asia um, during my career. And then I retired in uh, 2014 and really didn't expect to have much of a public uh, career after that. But when a lot of this stuff with Russia and Trump came up, um, people were sort of dumbfounded by a lot of the stuff they learned about how, what the Russian intelligence services were up to, either with Mr. Trump or against our our country. And so I found myself sort of writing and speaking more publicly. So since that time, I've I've done lots of TV and documentaries and, and then written op-eds for New York Times and Atlantic and other places. And now I just recently started a company uh, working with Hollywood to try to work on uh, – making sort of espionage movies with Hollywood. So that's sort of what I've been spending my time with lately. And I have a son down at University of Virginia. So, John, can you explain what's the scandal going on between India and Pakistan? Yeah, I don't know if it's a scandal. And it's, a, it's, a, it's probably actually the most dangerous of the things that have gone on. Obviously, what the president in North Korea and the concern with North Korea and nuclear weapons is a huge problem. And uh, you know, obviously the state of affairs in Washington is something that's always going to have our attention. But you got to remember, so Pakistan was created out of India. So in British, in, when the British left India, there was a terrible, terrible sort of civil war. And, and India split into two parts, a Muslim country, which became eventually became Pakistan, and most majority Hindu India. And ever since that time, they've been blood enemies and have had several wars between them. And What's happened, obviously, over the years is both of them have become nuclear states. Um, so it's a real problem. So they're essentially the, what, third and fifth largest countries in the world, population-wise. They don't have any sort of business across their borders. They're, they're sort of terrible enemies. Um, and the Pakistanis, who are a smaller country with a very, very powerful military, um, have built up a nuclear force to try to defend themselves against what they worry about is their India invasion. So what's happened in the last, you know, few weeks is there was a terrorist attack in Indian Kashmir, which the Indians blamed on Pakistan, which is a fair fair blame because the Pakistanis have often used sort of terrorist groups to try to keep things unstable in, in India and in Afghanistan, for that matter. 
And the Indians responded by sending um, airplanes and fighter planes and bombers into Pakistan, supposedly to bomb these terrorist sites. And uh, Mm -hmm. Pakistanis shot down one of them. And so there's a real concern that, you know, between these two massive countries, uh, a war which could potentially be a nuclear war is something that would uh, change the calculus for all of us. My understanding is that the U.S. currently doesn't have any ambassadors to either India or Pakistan. There's fewer and fewer people, I think, or professionals that are interested in working for this administration. And um, the sort of chaos of the White House is such that they're not well staffed and organized in any event. So, yeah, that's a problem. So at one point, Trump wasn't appointing people to ambassador positions. But now you're saying that people don't want to be ambassadors anyway? Well, I think it's a mix. I mean, most People who certainly professionals who work for the State Department um, are willing to do their duty and 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 serve. Um, but when Trump came in, there was this, there was a you know a large population of very talented and experienced Republican professionals who who sort of signed the Never Trump pledge, and and the Trump administration refuses to use any of those people. And as the, as a couple of years have gone by, and people have seen sort of more and more of the chaos of this administration it's harder to get really talented and experienced people for these jobs. And so I think it's a mixture. I think, you know, there's there's certainly people who would do them. There's certainly people in the State Department that can do it. But for some reason, it's been, you know, slow getting through things with Congress, even even though they controlled the House and Senate and Congress for the last two years. So, yeah, it's, it's inexplicable. There's, the same thing was with Korea, in fact, until recently. So now we're going to switch gears to talk about the U.S.-North Korea summit in Vietnam. It seemed like Trump just walked away from the meeting without any sort of plan going forward. What do you think happened? You know, in this day and age, you always worry that it could have been worse. And I believe if, if, if President Trump agreed to what the North Koreans were offering, essentially eventually shutting down the Yongbyon uh, nuclear plant, in return for for dropping all sanctions, that would have been a terrible deal for the United States um, because they would have still contained their missiles and had other places where they were working on nuclear materials. And it would have taken a number of years to do so. It would have bought the Koreans sort of time. So, in fact, him walking away from the deal that was offered was, I think, the best we could hope for. However, I think most professionals would tell you that um, his willingness to do this sort of personal president-to-president diplomacy, there's a danger in that because there's no place else to go. Most administrations over the past decades have chosen to let their professionals sort of work the details of possible deals and then have the the president or the most senior people come in afterwards to, to sign a deal when the details have been worked out. So in this case, it doesn't look like a lot of professional work had been put in place. In fact, President Trump was denying the intelligence from the intelligence community saying that the that the North Koreans were continuing to work on their nuclear program and probably wouldn't be willing to give it up. He said that's not true, and he believed that by force of personality he'd be able to fix the problem. And uh, I think we've just seen now that that's not the case. So the real question is, you know, where do they go from here? If the president himself has put his cred- credibility on the line twice to make some sort of deal, and to make North Korea less of a a danger to the West, um, it's not really clear what can happen now. In fact, there's probably 
reason to suspect that the, the, the Koreans will continue to sort of up the pressure, to sort of put pressure on Trump to come back to the bargaining table again. So, yeah, that's something, you know, very much to, to worry about, and it, it appears very unprofessional in the way it was handled. In this case, Trump took Kim Jong-un's side regarding the mistreatment of Otto Warmbier, a UVA student who died shortly after being released from North Korean imprisonment. And Trump has done this before. He sided with the Saudi prince about the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And he's taken Putin's side on whether they were influencing our elections in 2016. And now he's taken the side of a quite brutal dictator who held an American hostage and which essentially led to his death. So, yeah, that's that's very troubling for people who are involved in these issues. The president is willing to sort of cozy up and agree with murderous tyrants and not with his allies and, and friends. The Michael Cohen hearing occurred two days ago. What did Cohen reveal in the House Oversight Committee? How does this pertain to the Mueller investigation? And how does this pertain to what we know about the Russia 2016 election interference? These are all sort of bigger questions. And, and the, the problem is when we get into domestic politics, people are already sort of in their corners. And, and so I think what Cohen told us is is probably stuff that was suspected by a lot of people who are concerned about President Trump and the way he's, he's running the country. So, um, you know, Cohen, as you know, was President Trump's lawyer for at least – 10 years, he was sort of what they called his fixer and, and bulldog who would attack people um, who the president saw as, as threatening or trying to get involved in looking into his finances and other things. Um, so I, the House Republicans were clearly trying to do everything they could to uh, make Mr. Cohen out to be a liar and so that none of, no, nothing that he said would be trusted um, in an effort to sort of protect the president at, at all costs. However, I think they weren't really worried about him being a liar. They were worried about the fact that, in this case, he might tell the truth. So Cohen, as you know, is, is going to prison shortly for for lying to Congress and, and engaged in, in activity that's being investigated by the Southern District of New York. So I think the people who have been paying attention to, you know, the election and the Trump administration and, and, and are concerned about the president's character and about his um, – finances and, and concern, focus on Russia and potential criminality, probably use the Cohen hearings to further bolster their view that this president is unsuited and unfit for office. And they probably learned a few things that will be useful to them, specifically some names of people who can veri- potentially verify some of the claims made by Mr. Cohen. So Mr. Cohen talked about, for example, uh, Trump's uh, financial uh, director. Um, it's likely now that the Congress will invite him and some others to hearings on the Hill um, to further explore some of these things about you know, hush money and bribes that were paid and, and his, his means of using his finances to try to avoid taxes and uh, low-ball insurance claims and all these other kind of things. So I think this is the beginning of a long series of congressional hearings to look into the president's fitness and the president's business relationships, and it will certainly tie into whatever the Mueller investigation comes up with related to 2016 and the Russians or some of the people who have been indicted based on that investigation. I heard a statistic this week that said Trump has 18 ongoing investigations. 
between Mueller, some cases in New York, and even in D.C. into his inaugural committee. So to backtrack on what we talked about, between India and Pakistan, the U.S.-North Korea summit, and the Michael Cohen hearing, what's most important and why? I think the India-Pakistan flare-up is certainly the most important. A, a nuclear war on the South Asian subcontinent, you know, with the third largest country in the world and maybe the fifth or sixth largest country in the world is something that, you know, will, will dwarf a lot of the things we're, we're worried about. It appears so far that they're handling it, frankly, better than I would expect it. Uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Khan it has already returned the, the uh, downed Indian pilot. And, and a lot of times in these cases, at least from my experience, having been in Pakistan, um, there are the publics want to ramp up the the energy and the, and the hatred and, and sort of stoke the fires of against between the two countries. And so in this case, their willingness to sort of not quickly use these things to to uh, increase tension, but to sort of diffuse tension is, is a very, very good sign. Um, I think the Cohen stuff is obviously important in the sense that this is sort of the beginning now that you have a Democratic-led House. There will continue to be investigations uh, on the president and his administration. Um, I think that's important because I think one of the things that Mr. Cohen said in, in the hearing, which I think is true, is, is I don't, is Trump, I don't believe, ran for president thinking he would win. He thought it would be the world's biggest info commercial and help him financially. Um, and probably never expected to win the presidency, which would shine such a bright light on his background and his finances, and so now we're starting to see, you know, what kind of person he really is. Uh, now, he has a very loyal base that probably doesn't care if he's a criminal, but uh, time will tell whether, you know, the accumulation of this kind of information will eventually hurt the president politically or even to be impeached. And the North Korea thing is something that's been with us for, you know, since the early days, certainly of the Clinton administration, you know, 30 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, We've been trying to, to deal with this recluse and strange country, and, and, and nothing has seemed to work effectively. Um, this administration chose to, to sort of – no president prior has met with the leader of North Korea. And now in the space of a few months, our president has met with him twice. And now it would be, it would be great if that relationship actually diffuses tension. Uh, it remains to be seen. But right now there's – there is nothing tangible that we've gained from that process. So they still have nuclear weapons. They've still tested um, missiles that conceivably could hit the United States. Um, they still control and terrorize their population. There's still a threat to our allies in South Korea and Japan. And so we haven't earned anything tangible. Um, we can hope that the relationship improves, but, you know, by all, by all you know, sites, I think it will probably turn to the worst, but you know that remains to be seen. To recap on the U.S.-North Korea summit that occurred last year, there was talk of the U.S. pulling out troops from North Korea. What ended up happening with that, John? Well, in fact, I think there was a news report today that we, for some reason, you know, quote-unquote ease tensions, we've agreed to, you know, either stop or, or pull back on, on our... Um, exercises that we do with the South Korean military. And I think that's a, it's a big mistake of giving a concession again to North Korea for nothing in return. And it's leaving very, very strong American allies in the lurch. And 
I think of all these things that we've talked about, there's one for someone who's been in a professional diplomatic or intelligence service or, or other, my former colleagues, that is most troubling is it's our relationship with our allies. So, mm-hmm. you know, the United States doesn't exist alone in the world, and our biggest strength vis-a-vis China, Russia, and some of these other places that are their adversaries is we have excellent allies. We have the world's richest and most powerful allies, Japan, Europe, and others, um, and then people, in fact, in Southeast Asia and, and around the world, Australia, that, that work on our behalf. But since this administration has come in, they've, we've been essentially treating them as our adversaries, um, been unclear about if they can rely on us and support us. We've we've taken action that sort of surprised them and, and, and potentially hurt them, and, and South Korea is a good example. I mean, I think um, since this president's been in, in power, he's, he's attacked and, and bullied South Korea far more than he's done so with North Korea, and, you know, people like Japan and South Korea just really don't know from day to day what the United States is going to do and whether they can rely on them. And, and I think that's very dangerous for us. They're going to have to start making their own decisions. There might even be sort of a move of countries that are going to sort of move more into the Chinese orbit or others because they can't count on the United States. And, and um, having worked overseas most of my career, the amount of stuff that our allies do for us, the quiet, secret, um, but incredibly helpful, uh, is something most Americans don't know. But those of us who've, who've worked in government do know and, and and really is troubling to us. So, John, I'm a big fan of your Twitter. <laughs> How do you get your inspiration? I think I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I like to think that I'm, that uh, people understand my snarky humor, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And throughout my career, it always hasn't worked for me, but Twitter seems to be a very good platform for noticing the silliness of the world and commenting on it. And that's all we have for this week. The Global Inquirer will be on spring break next week, and then we will be preparing for our live episode on April 3rd. Stay tuned for updates on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you liked this episode, please let us know on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.